It's so wonderful to be with you guys today. If you've got your Bibles with you, we're in 1 Kings, and we're going to see what are some lessons that we can learn from Solomon, his life. And, um, and so we went through this series during our Advent time, and we looked at various kings in the life, uh, various kings in Israel's time, one of them being Solomon, appointed by God to lead God's people with integrity, with faithfulness, with honor. And although Solomon was a good king, Solomon messed up big time. He did some, he made some big mistakes. And so what are some of the things that we can glean from Solomon and his life? And how can we fashion our own lives on um, someone who is greater than Solomon, right? So if you've got your Bibles with you, open them up to 1 Kings chapter one, and we're going to flip through, like I said, a whole bunch of chapters. Why don't I pray for us, and then we kind of jump straight into it. God, I thank you that you are enough. You are enough. That you are glorious, that you are righteous, and that you are with us right now. Lord, I want to confess that amidst all of the busyness of life, Father, I can so easily forget that you are with us. I confess that so often our hearts can be divided, our desires can be misplaced. And so we ask right now, Holy Spirit, help us to take hold of who Jesus is in the fullness of Him, that we would know Christ's supremacy, His sovereignty, and that Jesus, you are our satisfying Savior. We confess that you, Jesus, are enough. Come right now. Capture our hearts. Renew our minds. We pray this for our good. We pray this for your glory. And we commit this time to you. And all of God's people said with one loud super voice, amen, 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 amen. So over the summer of last year, I listened to a podcast from Christianity Today. You might be already starting to clock what it is. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. So put up your hand if you've listened to that podcast. Am I the only one? There's a couple of us that have listened to us. It's good to know that you're still at church. You still come. You're still part of church. You still love Jesus. I listened to it. It was hard going. Uh, I listened to it mostly in the car whenever I was driving. And I had to keep myself from driving my car into a bridge every single time I listened to this podcast. Because it's a hard listen. It's really hard to listen to this podcast. If you haven't listened to it, what it is about is about Christianity Today um, endeavored to chronicle the ministry of a man called Mark Driscoll and the rise and the fall of the fastest growing church in America in the 2000s. And Mars Hill was a church in the Seattle region of America. And it was really clear that God was doing something amongst that community. It was clear that um, it was like a mini revival that was happening amongst the Mars Hill churches. Men and women from very different walks of life, churched, unchurched, all coming to faith in Jesus, taking their sin seriously, taking Jesus seriously. And although it was really uncomfortable to listen to this podcast, what I could really appreciate about the, co- uh, about the podcast is that they were, really, they were trying really hard to get underneath the hood 
underneath the bonnet and to understand why. Why? Why is it that such a great leader, why is it that such a great church is able to rise in this way and then also is able to crash and burn in such a monumentous, catastrophic way? Why? What lessons can we learn from it? That's what they endeavor to do. Why is it that such good leaders make really bad decisions? You don't have to look far in politics even to see that. In Britain, we've had a couple of prime ministers in a short amount of time. They're breaking records. And so I think for us as a church, as many of you that are in leadership positions, why is it we're all at risk? And so I think that the life of Solomon can be helpful for us as a church today. And so in keeping with um, the title from Christianity Today, if you are taking notes, I'm going to borrow it. And as we look at the life of Solomon, we're going to look at it underneath these three headings. The rise of a king, the fall of an empire, and the lessons that we're able to learn from a wise fool. The rise of a king, the fall of an empire, and lessons that we can learn. So in the opening pages of 1 Kings, we find ourselves about a thousand-ish years from the birth of Christ. We're in Jerusalem. David has died, and he has appointed Solomon to be king over the people of Israel, over Israel. Now, anyone have a guess as to what is the age of Solomon when he became king? Any guesses? Age of Solomon. 40? Lower. Low, low, low. How low can you go? 20, lower. 8, a little bit higher. He was 12, 12 years old. He was 12 when he became king. How many of you here would have felt ready to be king of a nation when you were 12? We have a, you've got one. We'll talk after it. I have an 11 year old who's 12, 12, he's 12. I don't know if I would want him to be king of a nation. That's scary to think of him being king, making decisions. But anyway, here is Solomon. He's barely hit puberty. He spends his days mastering Fortnite, uploading TikTok videos, doing dance-offs. I was at the Garbers' last night watching the kids through the window, filming each other, doing dancing or whatever else. And he gets a call from his father, David, come to my bedside, I'm dying. And David puts his hands on his 12-year-old son's shoulders and he says these words to him in chapter 2 of 1 Kings. And verse 2 he says, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God. Walk in His ways. That's important. Keep his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word, that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay pay close attention to their way, 
to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul. You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And so young Solomon takes these words to heart from his father. Solomon wants to be a good son. He wants to be a good king. When you read in 1 Kings 3, we see that Solomon loved the Lord. And there is this life-changing moment that happens in verse 5 of chapter 3 in Solomon's life. Because God appears to Solomon in a dream. And God says to Solomon, ask for whatever you want and it will be yours. Ask for whatever you want and it will be yours. Can you imagine that? Could you imagine God meets with you, he hands you in a sense a blank piece of paper and says to you, write down whatever you want, it's yours. What would you put down if that was you in that moment? Actually, not what would you put down now, what would your 12-year-old self put down on that piece of paper when the Creator, Yahweh, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, meets with you and says, ask of me whatever you want and it will be yours. I have it a guess, my 12-year-old self would be asking for a big screen TV, maybe arms like Chris Hemsworth. If you don't know who that is, that's Thor. Gosh, that, I mean, I'm a bloke and that guy's got a body. He's got arms. Maybe a one-year subscription to Unlimited KFC. I know there's only one that I've heard of, but you know, maybe things could happen, right? What would your 12-year-old self ask for? Well, listen to what Solomon asks for. In verse 6 of chapter 3, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father. Because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you, and you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and you have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people. Too many to be numbered or or to be counted, a multitude. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this your great people? You see, in that moment, Solomon doesn't ask for a pink stretch hummer, a pool full of cash. Rather, in humility, what Solomon asks for is wisdom. Wisdom. You see, he's been entrusted, what has been entrusted to him, and he says, God, I need your help to make wise decisions. And this is a great prayer to pray, by the way. Regardless of whatever situation that you find yourself in, 
or whatever situation you'll find yourself in the future, pray. Ask God for wisdom in that situation because God honors that kind of a prayer. And why do we know that? Well, let's see how God responds to Solomon when he asks for wisdom. Verse 10, chapter 3, And it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this. And God said to him, Because you have asked for this, and have not asked for yourself long life for riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keep my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And what we see in how God responds to Solomon's request is that wisdom that God gave to Solomon not only establishes Solomon to make wise rulings, but as we read on, we see that Solomon went on to establish Israel as a nation, a nation with tremendous wealth and prosperity. Actually, some would say in Solomon's time, it was the golden era for Israel. Remember, he built the temple, the place that would house the presence of God. In Solomon's time, he would have been wealthier than Elon Musk, more powerful than the Pope. He would have had more followers than Justin Bieber, more women than Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans, and One Direction combined, which ultimately leads to my second point, the fall of an empire, the fall of an empire. I want to encourage you, if you get a chance this week, if you've got some time, you'll need about 45 minutes to about an hour. If you get a chance, read the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings in one sitting. Give yourself some time. Sit down, make a cup of coffee, and read the first 11 chapters in one sitting. This will kind of help you to get a full picture, the whole story, all at once. And if you do this, you will notice as you move through the narrative of his life, it seems to suddenly, out of nowhere, Solomon's empire falls. It comes crashing down. But if you had to just slow down and dig a little bit more, look a little bit more closely, you'll begin to see the cracks start to form in Solomon's life as he starts to make some decisions that aren't wise and aren't good. We're going to have a look at those things. Flip a couple of pages forward to chapter, chapter 10 of 1 Kings, and we have this small but important glimpse at one of those cracks. It has to do with Solomon's chariots. It has to do with his horsemen. In verse two, uh, 26 of chapter 10, it says, And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. Now, chariots and horsemen in the ancient world were like the most advanced weaponry that was known 
to man. It was like the tank of World War I or the nuclear bomb that we know of today. And although Solomon's weaponry may have seemed, might seem insignificant to us in the day that we live today, or it might even seem wise that he had that level of weaponry because of all of the wealth that he had to protect, God called Solomon to not be like the other kings. God said, Solomon, you are to be different from the other nations. You are a chosen people. You are to be different to other kings. And in Deuteronomy, God speaks to Israel, and He tells them that when they enter the promised land, and a king rules them, like the other nations, remember they asked for us, give us a king that will rule us like the other nations, they are to be sure of a few things when they appoint a king. The first thing that they should do is that God chooses the king who will rule them. Secondly, the king should be from among the Israelites. The third one, and that's, this is an important one, they should not acquire great number of horses for himself. The other one is that he should not take many wives, or his heart shall be led astray. And the last one is he should not accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. God gives them conditions if you are to be king in Deuteronomy. And the reason why Israel's king should not be like other kings, that they are, should be different to the other nations. And yes, sure, God blessed Solomon with wisdom. God blessed Solomon with the ability to accrue wealth. But as with anything, there is a really fine line to getting the house in order and being a slave to materialism and worldly pleasures. And so he wasn't to have many horsemen and chariots. Solomon didn't do well when it came to that. What else? The king was not to have multiple wives. He was to marry an Israelite. How did Solomon do with this? Not great. Look at verse 1 of chapter 11. Now Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, a Moabite, an Ammonite, an Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite woman, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you should not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart away after their gods." Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines. Now I know, I know some of you guys are thinking, man, that's a lot of anniversaries to remember. <laughs> if you love an Excel spreadsheet, it's a dream. But seriously, as just as the Lord had warned Solomon, what happens in the end? Verse 3, what happens? And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after, the, after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord 
his God, as was the heart of David, his father. You see, instead of Solomon worshipping the God of his forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, no, rather Solomon becomes a slave to his own desires. He becomes a slave to the spirit of that age, a slave to counterfeits and to false gods. Now, as a king in the eyes of the world, Solomon was amazing. Many would have revered a man like Solomon today. But when weighed up with the revelation of God's word that God had spoken to them as the people in, in Deuteronomy, when, when, when we look at Solomon's life through the eyes of God, this wise man was a complete fool. Now, as we know, history repeats itself, yeah? And if we cannot learn from history, then we're doomed to repeat it. And so I want to say to you, Lift Church, what lessons can we learn as we look under the hood of Solomon's life so that we don't repeat them as well? So that's my third point, lessons from a wise fool. So I have a couple of observations for us. The first one is this. It's not where you start, but it's where you finish that really counts. It's not where you start, but it's where you finish that really counts. And I want to suggest to you today that in order to finish strong, your eyes need to be on the prize at the end. You see, Solomon starts off strong, right? He comes out of the blocks with energy, passion, zeal. But as he climbs the hill of life, it's clear that he did not complete the race that God had planned for him to run. He became spiritually sluggish. He forgot his first love. See, Solomon is a man like many other fallen leaders today who become consumed with the, the kingdom of this age, who lose sight of the kingdom of God. And although Solomon's fall off the cliff edge kind of seems so fast, actually the steps leading up to that point is not as fast as what we think it is. It's not he tripped and he fell. No. They are gradual. They are subtle. It's actually almost impossible to spot them if you're not looking very closely to be aware of them. And I think that the same is true for me and the same is true for you today. Now, if you've been a Christian for some time, you'll know that there are these kind of big sins that we are all very much aware of and very... and know really well that we are to avoid them, right? Like, do not murder. We know that one. Don't do it. Not good. Won't end well for you. Big sin. Do not steal. D big one. Don't do it. It won't end well. Do not cheat or lie, especially on your taxes if you've got to do that kind of stuff. It doesn't end well for you. You will get caught out. You will, it, it, yeah, don't do it. The big ones, we know those ones. 
Most of us are able to navigate our way around those things. We know how to avoid them. They're like these big, bright neon signs that kind of shout at us, don't go there, don't go there. But what is more pressing for us is not those big ones, the murdering and the stealing and the, all that kind of stuff. It's the smaller ones. It's the subtle ones. It's the, it's the minor shifts in direction. Think of it like this, like a ship's compass that hasn't been calibrated, and it's only one degree out, and you might think it's only one degree. But that might seem insignificant in the short term, but in the long term, one degree has a massive impact. You went from Newcastle and you took the ferry to Holland. If you're one degree out, you would land up in Norway. Very far off course, off track. small and subtle things. It's the drifting away from regular devotion in the morning. It's like drifting away from the regular practice of reading your Bible, having the plumb line of your life set. It's the drifting away from the, the regular practice of confessing your sins one to another. Being vulnerable, we don't like those things. We don't like people to see us with, some, with the areas that we struggle with in our life. We feel like that's weakness. I want to say, no, that's strength. The small and subtle things of not l- living in a loving community. I'm preaching to the choir, you've come to church, but not coming to church regularly is not healthy for the believer. It's good when the body gathers together and sings, and worships. We hear each other singing, and it encourages me as I hear my brother or sister singing next to me. When I'm able to come to church afterwards and say, please pray for me, and someone sets their hands upon me. Sure, I can do that over the phone, but coming together like this, it just doesn't beat it. If you're not a regular church attendee, can I just encourage you? Can I give you the warning? It's the small subtleties. Commit yourself to coming regularly. Commit yourself regularly to confessing your sin, which is why communion is so important as well. As we gather and we take communion, we confess our sins. And I want to say to us, what happens if we reverse engineered our lives? In other words, you and I start to live with the end in mind. We start with a vision for how we want our story to end, and we reverse engineer our lives. We we think about how that conversation with Jesus is going to go at the end of our lives. How do I want that conversation to go? For me, that conversation with Jesus will no doubt be about my faith, perhaps, my, my journey with Christ. Probably talk about my marriage to SLA. We'll probably talk about me being a dad to three awesome boys. We'll probably chat about me being a pastor at Cornerstone Church, what it meant to love his people, lead his people. And here's the point about that conversation and why I say that because I want that conversation at the end to go well. Yeah? You want that conversation to go well? I want that conversation to go well. I want to know that when I am with Jesus, I'm able to look back over my life 
and see that my children had a dad who cheered them on. They had a dad who encouraged them. A dad who wasn't perfect, but a dad where streams of love and grace flowed for them. I want to look back at my marriage to my wife. And I want to say that she knew that I loved her. That she knew that I cherished her, that I sought to protect her, to serve her, to cheer her on, that she would love and all every every aspect of her life. But as I look back at my ministry at Cornerstone Church, I want to thank God for his incredible kindness and the many things that he has accomplished in the church that we are a part of and that we lead. Thank Him for the people that moved from death and darkness to life and light. And as good as what all of those things are, I want most of all that my relationship with Jesus to be the most authentic and the deepest at that point. That's how I want my story to end. What about you? How do you want your story to end? What do you want the conversation to be like? as you sit with Jesus. So what if we seek to make every decision today and from this moment forward, every decision in light of that moment, that moment that you are with Jesus, choices on who you will marry, choices around your career, choices around the jobs that you take and the jobs that you don't take, choices around what you will do and what you will not do, do we seek to live in light of the end? Will we stumble? Yep, you will stumble. Will we forget who we are? Yeah, you will. You will forget. Will we forget this vision that we want at the end? Yeah, you are going to forget sometimes. But God, by His grace, he can get us back up and we sit in His mercy and we walk in the faith that God has given to us. That's the first observation. How do you want your story to end? What if you reverse engineered your life from this moment forward? The second observation from Solomon's life, and this might seem quite obvious, but it's worth saying anyway, but I'm sure that you would agree with me that money, sex, and power are dangerous. They're dangerous things. And the reason why I say that they're dangerous is partly because in and of themselves, they will never, ever satisfy those deep longings of our hearts, and they can draw you and I away from what truly matters. They can blind us from what is really important. And can I say, don't be na naive and say, I'll never do what Solomon did. How silly, how stupid. Don't be that naive to think, you know, we did that as parents before we had kids. You know, when you're married, it's all lovely, and you see those kids and you're like, we'll never do that. We would have done this already by now. Oh, we'll never raise our kids like that. We'll and then what happens? You have kids, and you're like, we're those parents. <laughs> Don't be na so naive to think that you will never 
be at risk of the foolish decisions that Solomon made as materialism and the, 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 the desires of the world begin to tug and grip your heart. Lastly, we need someone who is greater than Solomon. Yeah, you would agree? Yeah. Let's have a look at Solomon. Okay, foolish, bad choices. Let's not do that. But hang on. We can't just fashion our lives around Solomon. We need someone who is greater than Solomon. The tragedy of Solomon and many other great leaders that are around today is that they have, uh, that have crashed and fall is this eradication of hope. The people of Israel put their hope in Solomon. He was going to be their provider. He was going to help them discern what is right and wrong. He was going to help them. And he was going to lead Israel into this way of life. And then when Solomon fell short of the hope that he proclaimed that he would deliver for the people, the whole thing comes kind of crashing down. And so what do we do? Where do we look to as people? This is what Jesus says in Matthew 12 and verse 42. He says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and here is the, the kicker, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This is Jesus saying someone is greater than Solomon is here. Jesus, the son of a carpenter, is saying that someone who is greater than Solomon is here. They must have thought he's crazy. Has he lost his mind? Because doesn't, doesn't he mean because Solomon had a palace, Jesus had nowhere to lay his head? How can he say that someone is greater than Solomon is here? Solomon had thousands upon thousands of people serving him. Jesus had a few fishermen. How can someone greater than Solomon be amongst us? But you see, Jesus is the true and better king. Solomon might have had wisdom, but Jesus is the source of all wisdom. He is the word made flesh. You see, man messed up his opportunity. Man gave into sin, and yet Jesus was offered every opportunity to sin, was tempted in every way, yet stood firm in the face of trial and temptation. In Solomon's last years, he was enslaved to pagan and counterfeit gods, all trying to serve himself. Where do we see Jesus in his last days? We see him on a cross. We see him pouring himself out in dependence upon God, in love for his bride, his church. Do you know who Jesus is? Jesus is the true King, the King of kings, one who you and I can truly follow. Jesus is the one person who you can truly orientate your whole life around. Every decision can be made around Christ. He's the solid rock on which we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Every decision that you make can be made around Christ. He is the one whom you can entrust your hope to. He is the one who you can find love in because you were made for Him. 
And our world needs Jesus. Our world needs men and women who will lead and love like Jesus. When it comes to authority and leadership, the response to bad authority is not no authority, it's good authority. We need gospel-centered men and women who will love like Jesus and lead like Jesus in this generation.